Hey friend, thanks so much for stopping by for some community time around the fire pit. I've got some Tennessee white oak going. I'm going to run inside and get us both a cup of joe. Well, you're listening to Quad Dot Rocks, God, the World, and Other Things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, you've got it, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. Hey, this is Season 11, Episode 230, title Hodgepodge Number 2. I think it's Number 2. We're going to call it Number 2. Subtitle, Elvis, Toxic People, and Other Things. It's 4.01 a.m. as I write this, August 11th, 2022. It's been 24 hours exactly since my wife woke me up to get ready to take her to BNA, Nashville International Airport. I don't know what the B stands for. It's some sort of designation by the airlines industry. But anyway, to fly to Southwest Airlines to Dallas, Texas to see her family. Her father and mother are up in years. They just sold their house to move into my wife's baby sister's home for assisted living. It's strange how the only thing that's changed here in my home is my wife is out of state, but it creates a very eerie silence. It's hard to explain. My wife and I have been married for over 40 years, and in that time, we've only been apart for just a few brief moments, the longest being the summer we moved here to Tennessee. She helped me in Texas the first two weeks of June in the summer of 2018 to get going on our summer lunch program for kids in poverty. Then she moved here to find a place for us to live. I then came 10 weeks later, around August 15th. I now know firsthand what singer-songwriter Neil Diamond meant when he sang the words, I never cared for the sound of being alone. The silence of her absence is weird. It, It makes me more empathetic for those who have had a spouse pass away. The physical absence of the person leaves a void that is deafening, even if it's temporary. This sort of ties into an overarching theme for this podcast, things that are boudacs in your brain. A boudac, as best as I can describe it, is a made-up word used by my Greek professor to describe something that sticks in your brain, whether it's a memory marker you use to call back a piece of data out of your brain or a thought that cleats in your brain that you can't seem to get rid of. In conversation with a longtime friend from Texas on the phone the other night, and this is shifting gears now, he mentioned he and his wife saw the, I guess it's pronounced Boz Luhrmann's movie Elvis. After hearing his description and then watching the movie trailer, I knew I had to see the movie. The trailer felt very much like a Tim Burton movie. The depth and organic nature of the cinematography immediately set it apart from the standard Hollywood production. It was filmed in Australia by Boz Luhrmann, who was the writer, producer, (laughs) director, everything in the movie. It's rated PG-13, so I decided to go. Unfortunately, there are some uses of profanity and a few spots where the wheels come off in Presley's life, but there are no F-bombs and sex scenes or nudity. If you know anything about Presley's life later, you know that the possibility to go over the top in those areas was available to Lerman, so he wisely exercised great restraint. The story is told from the perspective of Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, played by Tom Hanks. To be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Hanks for a lot of different reasons these days, though he is immensely talented as an actor, but he nailed the colonel. I'm old enough to remember the events of Elvis Presley's life in real time, and I can testify that Lerman masterfully and historically presented a cinema masterpiece that captured the emotion, the ambiance, the world that was then. That was Elvis. 
It's hard to put into words exactly what the movie was because it was not a documentary, but it was more like a dream brought to life. I'm glad I saw it on the big screen because the sound and the cinematography was totally immersive. By a rare set of circumstances, I accidentally got to see Elvis perform live in 1974 at the Tarrant County Convention Center in downtown Fort Worth, Texas. The mother of one of my sister's friends had tickets to see Elvis, but backed out because relatives had come into town to visit and she didn't have enough tickets to invite them along, so she told her daughter to give the two extra tickets to a friend. So my sister was invited, and my sister asked me to tag along. I'm a huge fan of Elvis' music, not Elvis' life. Elvis never wrote one song. He was an interpreter of songs and was an amazing musician, musically gifted. The movie highlights the manipulation and abuse of Elvis by Parker, which was revealed in lawsuits later by the family post-Presley's death at the young age of 42. Presley both abused and was the abuser. His self-absorption cost him his life. That's my personal opinion. Through a weird set of circumstances and events, Elvis's stepbrothers, who came to live with Elvis at Graceland when Elvis's father remarried after the death of Elvis's mother, they orbed in my life. Rick Stanley was a Southwestern Seminary student at the same time I attended Southwestern. I heard Rick speak several times during those years. Rick tells the story of Presley, who was greatly impacted by black gospel music. He said he did know Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior and openly talked to Rick several times about the fact that he knew that he needed to change the way he was living. Dave Stanley was a member of my home church for a few years. If Presley really did know Jesus, it's highly possible that God chastened Presley and called him home, sort of like saying, Elvis, I'm not going to continue to let you live like this. But I've got a question. How does it happen that a person becomes so self-absorbed, so self-centered, that they move into what appears by all circumstances to be an irrevocable life position we call narcissism? There's no blood test that says, yep, you're a narcissist. It's what we call a clinical diagnosis. A clinical diagnosis is the process of identifying a disease, condition, or injury based on the signs and symptoms a patient is having and the patient's health history and physical examination. Most of the time, it's through conversations with the physician. Google defines a narcissist as a disorder in which a person has an inflated sense of self-importance. Narcissistic personality disorder is found more commonly in men. The cause is unknown, but likely involves a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Symptoms include an excessive need for admiration, disregard for others' feelings, and inability to handle any criticism and a sense of entitlement. The disorder needs to be diagnosed by a professional. This is what Google reports. Treatment involves talk therapy. A simple definition is a person who has an excessive interest in or admiration of themselves. In other words, narcissists think the world revolves around them. I've personally known some people who have all the traits of classic narcissism. My own opinion is that narcissism is a gross sin that has devastating consequences in a person's life. Secular mental health workers have a hard time differentiating between consequences of a sinful lifestyle and physical maladies caused by the defective bodily functions and organs. There's a world of difference. But make no mistake about it. 
Perpetual gross sin can have bad physiological impact on a person. The doctor scans the brain of a serial killer and points to anomalies that show up on a scan and say, well, part of the person's problem is probably caused by this abnormality here, when in fact the deep, devastating, perpetual actions by a person out of control does change the person physically. At a point in my life when I was wrestling with a situation that I was working on in the ministry that involved a narcissist, I had the most unusual encounter with a retired psychiatrist. It was not a planned event. It's just something that God brought together. And I had a few moments to where this person was sitting there by himself. I got to talking to them and found out that they were a retired psychiatrist of 42 years. And I realized this was my moment to talk to someone who had an expertise in this realm. I asked him what could be done to a person who is in full-blown, out-of-control narcissism. Now, get this. You need to listen to this. He said that he'd been in practice for 42 years, and then in all of his time as a mind doctor, and those are my words, a mind doctor, but that's what a psychiatrist is, is a medical doctor who works with the human mind, that he had never seen one narcissist change, really change. Not one. He said that if there was any hope in the narcissist changing, that it might come through the practice in some religious sects called shunning. He said if the person's support structure provided by the people closest to them was pulled out, if the person was cut off, that there might be hope for change, but that he personally had never seen one person change. So what do you do when you're living with someone who is an abuser, a self-absorbed narcissist, perhaps someone who is incurably broken? Yes, and friend, I understand, and I am the first to say this, that all things are possible with God. But friend, when a healthcare professional has been in the mind business for 42 years and testifies that they have never seen one narcissist really change, it may be possible that the sin of self-absorption and self-centeredness may have permanent consequences. It's like someone involved in drug addiction or alcohol. They may stop taking the drugs or drinking, but the physiological damage is real that's happened to their physical body. It may be a Pandora's box of disaster that can't be closed. So what do you do? What do we do? One of my key mentors in life shared this truth with me that allowed me, in clear conscience, to distance myself from the toxic individuals. I've been close to multiple men who all have exhibited the symptoms of what science calls NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. My friend said, Kenny, your friend has put you in a place you never wanted to be. You did not ask for this. So to distance yourself from that person is in response to the person's unacceptable behavior. My friend, listen to that. Here's something that really has not been talked about much in the church but that we need to keep in mind that at times the other person can do things that are so outlandish, so over the top, or so consistently abusive that they place you into a position you never wanted to be, that you did not ask for. So we need to keep in mind that the consequences that come because of this abusive behavior is something that they have provoked and caused. It's their fault. It really is not your fault. So to distance yourself from that person is in response to the person's unacceptable behavior. 
As a Christian, it's not in our basic nature to cut people off. We're taught to be ever the optimist about the potential for a person to change, to be transformed. The organization which I launched in August of 2015, this will be our seventh anniversary, its name is Transform This City, One Life at a Time. So I absolutely believe that someone can be radically transformed. But friend, there are times the only thing that you can do is to cut a person off. My mentor reminded me that, Kenny, there are a lot of churches and there are a lot of other Christians out there that can provide the network of support to your friend if they come to their senses and want to change and grow. So it's not all on your shoulders. You're not the only one who can help that person grow and change. So you cut the person off and you stop having anything to do with them or their toxicity. But then your mind, those budaks, Thoughts from the past that invade your thinking, your quiet moments, your times of solitude, the memories that seek to tear down your peace. How do you stop the continued thoughts and memories, those boot acts of damage left behind in the contrail of the narcissist? Here's how you do it. Number one, through the power of Jesus Christ, you moment by moment die to yourself, cast all your cares on Jesus, and choose to stop thinking about the past and the abuse. Friend, it is moment by moment. It is day by day, and it is a choice. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible to do this. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus said that if a person refuses to repent and respond to all the avenues of spiritual discipline, that you are to cut them off, to treat them like a taxpayer, to treat them like a Gentile. And in Jesus' time, to say that means you cut them off. You have nothing to do with them. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6, he said, and I've referenced this in podcasts previously, that although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, dear friend, this is something we can do, and we can be successful at pulling those boot acts out of our brains, scars and actions from narcissistic people that seek to destroy our peace. So, if we find ourselves living in the realm of a narcissist, in order to come to a place of peace, we must take the situation to the Lord in prayer, ask him for guidance out of the toxic situation, and moment by moment, we take every thought captive in Christ. And with that, my friend, I bid you peace.